Good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. We are located in beautiful Uptown Columbus on the corner of 11th and 1st. We would love for you to join us for worship or just stop by and say hello. At First Presbyterian Church, we welcome you with grace and gratitude for God's love. Our first lesson today is from Acts, chapter 2, verses 29 through 36. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him one of his descendants on the throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my God, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Continuing on uh, where Charlotte left off, our second lesson, continuation of Acts 2, and we'll be continuing on 37 through 47. That is Acts 2, verses 37 through 47. Listen for the word of the Lord. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation." So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by these apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> 
So to begin this Father's Day conversation, I share a story from a comedian who used to talk about how cheap his father was and would say every time he asked him for 50 cents growing up, his dad would give him his hard luck life story. That when he was a child, he would have to go and walk 15 miles to a farm and milk 90 cows. And the farmer didn't have a pail for the milk, so he had to put out his little hand and, and squeeze it in there and then walk another eight miles to find a can to put it in. And for that, every day, all he was able to earn was five cents. Well, the upshot of that is that he never got his 50 cents. But now, this comedian says, now that he has kids and his father grandkids, every time he comes over, the granddad, he says, let's just see how much money granddad has for his beautiful grandchildren. And so chapped was the son, this comedian telling the story, that he says every time after his father leaves the room, he calls his children over and he takes their money because it was his <laughs> that he never got as a child. Fun. Happy Father's Day. It is about connection today. We are starting and continuing the story in the book of Acts, and we are beginning a sermon series throughout the summer that will focus on the book of Acts. If you remember last summer, we collected or we traveled with David, Saul, and then David through the stories of David through First and Second Samuel. We went chronologically. We will do the same in the book of Acts, roughly starting last week with Pentecost, and we will continue this week. Uh, and then subsequent weeks after uh, to get as far as we can. Acts is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is exciting. It is filled with all kinds of adventure. Um, you have the, the, the beginning with the giving of the Spirit, which we celebrated last week at Pentecost. You've got Peter and the early church. Then the second half then shifts to Paul and his missionary journeys. It's a fun and a fantastic book, and I look forward to these stories. It will and probably has made a great movie at some point. Paul is very much in the theological Indiana Jones category, and we will experience some of that together. Uh, I invite you to read with me, read ahead. Uh, again, it's a great book. And as we are in a similar place as a church who has not too long ago come through a split, we are still coming back together. We are still figuring out who we are and moving forward. And as we look at the parallel of a young church beginning kind of from nothing, Holy Spirit inspired, formed, moved, propelled, we are in that same place. We may very well see many parallels between our church and the early church. And I hope the Spirit will bubble up inside of us several opportunities for us to double-check who we are as a congregation, to say this is the way the original church was designed. How are we doing? What aren't we doing? Where can we go when we allow ourselves to be moved by the gift of the Holy Spirit? Exciting, exciting. So, again, we... Pick up where you left off last week, and thank you to Dr. Earl Nichols, who preached for me when I was in Montreat, talked about the first part of the Pentecost story. And so let me kind of catch you up and move us into today. So 
We think the same writer wrote Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and Acts, the book of Acts, together. And if you look at the placement of Acts in the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have the Gospels. What what are Gospels? It's good news. Good news of who? Of Jesus. What does that mean? It's the stories of Jesus. And so you have the stories, all four different storytellers who were there or who were with people who were there who wrote it down so we could benefit. And then immediately the next book is what? Acts, A-C-T-S, Acts of the Apostles, but the larger picture is Acts. So you have the stories, and then what do you have? You have response. You have the event of Christ that the world experienced, and then it shifts so that those who experienced and witnessed would then go out and start to act on what they had seen, to be witnesses to not only the life and death, but especially the resurrection of Christ. Well, this is obviously all made up, preacher. Jesus came to be a good moral compass, and, well, I'm just, I'll just lean to his teachings, not so sure about this resurrection business. And again, this is the point where the disciples had nothing to gain. The disciples had nothing to gain by going out and saying, let's pretend like there was a Messiah. Or let's say Jesus lived but really died and did not raise. Let's pretend like he was raised from the dead. We will go out even though the Romans and the Jewish authorities are still looking for us to quell, to, to squash out the rest of this Christian sect. There's no money to be made. There's no power to be had. There is zero advantage to them making this up and lying to anyone about this. It is only hardship for their lives, their families, their world. Would have been very much easier just to say, let's go back and fish and to the other occupations from which those disciples, those apostles to be sent came from. But no, what motivated them? They saw him. They experienced him. They saw him post-resurrection in a way that made them say, despite all of those challenges that I just named, this is more important. The world must know what happened in the life, death, and life of Jesus Christ. So this is that moment. And even up until Pentecost, the disciples were confused They were not yet to the place where they had been able to put all the things together. They were still in fear. But when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, it changes. Peter, who had denied Christ three times, becomes the first one to stand with full boldness, with full passion and compassion, to deliver his first sermon, again, after the gift of the Spirit. Sometimes we can catch ourselves in between those two places. The disciples were still called disciples. They had still followed Christ, but before the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, they were still confused. They still had doubts and fears, which, of course, we will always have in some bit and fashion. But they weren't convicted enough They didn't understand enough. They weren't committed enough to stand and to go out and tell others until 
they received the gift of the Spirit. So we can find ourselves and leave ourselves in that position of post-Holy Spirit disciples, or we can seek to be those post-Holy Spirit disciples. That get it. You think Peter knew everything he was talking about? He didn't know. He didn't have what we have as far as Scripture and all the pieces that we now call our Bible. But he knew enough because he saw and he experienced to make his stand and to tell others about Christ. We live in both of those worlds. Sometimes we can muster the faith and the boldness to speak to others about Christ, to gather together as we're doing today, to worship, to study, to pray, to serve others in the world, to be a church family. And then some days we stay pre-Holy Spirit where we're kind of gaining information, we're good Presbyterians, we're mulling things over in our mind, we're taking pieces and playing it against what we know and what we think and what we believe. Our call today is to allow ourselves to be moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, at the end of Luke, the last thing that happens in Luke's gospel is that Jesus ascends, goes up into heaven. And the very first thing that happens in the book of Acts is a retelling of that. Jesus starts there with the disciples and then is taken up, and that is roughly around the time that's in Acts 1 and Acts 2 is when the Holy Spirit is given so that they are not without a physical representation of God's presence with them. The Spirit is given them. So they're gathered in their room still with crucifixion and resurrection swirling in their mind, can't figure it out, these disciples. The room fills with this violent rushing wind or like a violent rushing wind, takes them out into the street, tongues of flame. They're speaking languages. They don't speak. People are hearing all kinds of things. It was a gathering feast. They were there. The place was packed. And they say, surely, these are Galileans. They, you know, which means they didn't all go to Harvard. They weren't seen or known for their educational ability of speaking languages throughout the region. What's going on? How can they, well, they kind of punt and say, well, they must be drunk. And this is the opportunity Peter seizes. This is where he takes his foothold and stands. In this opportunity where they say, oh, they must be drunk. They could have left it there and gone about their business. But Peter says, no. It's not unlike our creeds and confessions in our Presbyterian traditions and those that use creeds and confessions. If you look at our book of confessions, it's not things that we have done wrong. It is things that we believe all the way back through the history of the church. And it's fascinating because in almost every case, a confession is written because something is going on in the culture or society that the church feels like it needs to respond. So then they write at that time, for those who wrote it, the stance of the church. For example, the Barman Declaration was written during World War II, during the rise of Hitler's Nazi party, to stand up and say that the churches are against this, this cannot stand, and this evil must be put down. Example, that cause and effect. Here, 
The stakes aren't quite so large as we see World War II. But Peter hears others looking at a divine-inspired moment, Pentecost, and saying, oh, they're just drunk. So very much like those confessions that are written in response to a cultural event, he stands up and says, oh, no, no, no. It's not that they are drunk as you suppose, and then says it's only 9 o'clock, which I guess would mean something to them. But he says, no, this is what's going on, and goes into this lengthy first sermon conversation about what happened with Jesus, brings up some of Joel's prophecy, says this Jesus whom you crucified, puts some guilt out there on it, then continues to work his way through what will become, again, this first sermon. It is the time that we see is the beginning of the church when the Spirit comes. And then he gives us some meat about how to practice this. So often nowadays, churches come down to the excitement of the moment. Churches come down to the enthusiasm, which the definition of enthusiasm is God-filled. It's the original definition of enthusiasm. We can be so much about being church and me trying to leave you with an inspired, emotional message, dynamic, all of those things that can be who we are, that you go from here feeling good, and then what? Bupkis. What's for lunch? Swing away. No, Peter doesn't do that. I'm sorry, Luke, our writer, doesn't do that. He leaves us with this amazing high, yes, this enthusiastic, inspired, dynamic, powerful, God-given moment in Pentecost in the giving of the Spirit. Now, the disciples could have said, wow, that was amazing. What's for lunch? Swing away. But that wasn't the end. Luke gives us some parameters to start to figure out how to put what happened in Pentecost into play. Again, the stories of Jesus in the, in the, the Gospels pivots on acts. It means we need to start responding to what we've experienced or how we've experienced God, Christ, Holy Spirit in our lives. This is the moment for them. So the Spirit gives them, Luke gives them four areas. What do you, well, okay, well, what do I do? He says, this is what they did. They fellowship together. They broke bread together. They forgot things together. <laughs> Taught together, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Those four things. Started as a skeleton for the early church. They could not be a group 
They could not be those who followed Christ without teaching and learning together. True today. They could not be a family of faith and in Christ without spending time together in faithful connections, building relationship, getting to know one another as more than just surface, how are you, how are you, but those who are sharing their faith journey together. Same today. Luke says you cannot be a community of faith without spending time in breaking bread together. It was so important to spend time together and at meals. I've shared this before, but in in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either coming from, at, or going to a meal through most of that gospel, which tells us the significance of breaking bread together, sharing food and hospitality, because we're building relationship together. In good Jewish tradition, when you would bless the table or say a blessing, as many of us do at meals, the table becomes a holy and sacred place. This table is not the only holy one in your lives. Every table you go to where you invoke God's presence, God is there and it becomes a holy place to spend time with family and friends, to share, to laugh, to cry, to be together. Not always happy and joyful, but together. Breaking of bread. And finally, prayer and praying together. The early disciples continued to go to temple, which tells us that they didn't shirk all of the tradition. It was still important to them, just as we who are looking to be reborn in our church, in our new lives of faith, We need not cast away who we are and where we've been. That's an important part. But we do need to spend time together in prayer with God. Prayer isn't necessarily just asking, although we're told to do that. It is just being in God's presence. Sometimes words are necessary. Sometimes they aren't. Prayer is so much more broad than I think we often allow it to be. It is spending time with God. Who are you close to that you don't spend time with? Or rather, who are you closest to in your lives when you look at relationships? My guess is it's the people you spend time with and talk with the most. No different in prayer as we see that as a form of God's presence, communication. And again, we have access to the almighty creator God, That is amazing and overwhelming. What a gift. Teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and praying together. A good way for us to look as a congregation for how we're doing. But even more so than those is the other big piece of this. And that is to recognize that it is the Holy Spirit's power that moves us, that powers us. Uh, One writer made an illustration about an albatross, bird, huge bird. Culturally, when you say something has become an albatross, it's become a negative, something that is kind of clunky and weighs you down. If you look at 
an albatross, its wingspan is 12 feet across. I'm, I'm six feet. You put two of me sideways, and you have the wingspan of this tremendous bird. Well, why is it considered a, a negative? Well, because it is clumsy. It cannot take off with just still air. It can flap its big bird wings around, but it cannot gain flight on its own. And the key to the albatross, the positive part of the albatross, is that it does not flap, it glides. Once it is able to be taken off by the wind, what in this illustration, the Holy Spirit takes and propels this bird and therefore us, and it doesn't spend time flap. We are flappers, friends. Most churches and most church people are. We're trying to do it ourselves. We're trying to work so hard to attain flight when all we need to do is figure out how to let the wind take us. That higher layer where the currents are faster, it can glide. And then goes down and lets gravity take it down and then gets close to the ocean and then the current takes it up again and the cycle continues. A tracker was placed on one of these birds and in 30 days it went 9,000 miles and then the battery ran out. These are marathon flight birds. They can go and go and go and they are just riding the currents. In a similar vein, I read a book uh, one time uh, about empowering leadership in a church, and it used kind of a similar but different metaphor, and that is the church is like a boat that is being rowed. And again, we want to row it because we know the way the church has to go. We're not sure where we're going, but we are mm, rowing it. We are sweating. We are working, doing our best. And we need to realize that there's a sail on that boat. And when you put that sail up, allow ourselves to be taken by the Spirit and moved and propelled. Well, okay, preacher, I'll just sit back and wait for your big wind to come blowing. Nope, that's not what it says. Somebody had to craft and design that sail. Somebody had to cut it to dimension specifically, treat it specifically to be in sea water conditions. They had to fasten it properly to the mast. They had to know when to raise it and when to lower it. That's where we come in. Those are human hands involved. We don't sit back. Our faith is not passive. It is active. But when we work and we prepare and we are open to being led and propelled by the Spirit, like that albatross gliding, like that boat Sometimes we just need to let go and let the Spirit take us. But we have to do our work. We have to do our piece of it. We were all given gifts to prepare for the coming of the Spirit. And while there's a lot of individual understanding about uh, our personal individual walk with Christ and our own taking of the Holy Spirit, and yes, there are certainly components of that, Pentecost happened when they were all there together, all together together. All was used several times in 
Luke's account. The Holy Spirit is a gift to the community, which means that we do best when we are together bound by that Spirit. A few weeks ago, we talked about the the tie that binds, and that is the Holy Spirit. We need not be like February 1985, Indianapolis 500. Third round, just from the start. Donnie Allison, professional driver. Car pulls over on the inside track. No gas. Oops. $250,000 vehicle that I don't know how many people had worked on. How much, where all that money come from, all the people it took. This was it. They had gotten it ready, and they were ready for it to drive, and there was no gas. In the church, we can be that vehicle. We can make everything look fantastic, and we need to. We can keep our vehicle in shape, which we should. But what we cannot do is forget to allow the Spirit to come in, which is our power, which is that which propels and moves us. So today, let us open our hearts together and individually to the presence of the Holy Spirit that isn't just a nice thought, isn't just a goal, it is something that we need to do. How do we do that? We teach and we learn. We are in fellowship together. We break bread together. And we pray together. What a gift we have been given in the Spirit and one another. Let us go forth and be led by God's Spirit. Hallelujah. Amen.